0: Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice. Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Camilla Janssen. I'm a GP in the New Forest in Hampshire and I'm very happy to present this webinar for you today in conjunction with Wessex LMC and the Wessex GP Education Trust. Sadly it's the last in the series of webinars that we are producing with Wessex GP Education Trust. This is a charity and it's sadly going to be closing at the end of the month. But myself and colleagues will, however, continue to produce educational content in conjunction with Wessex LMC, and you should be able to find information and book onto these events via the Wessex LMC website in due course. So this webinar will be recorded. It will sit on the Wessex LMC education page, along with the other webinars of the series, so you can watch back at a later date. The webinars are also made into podcasts, so if you find the recordings of these webinars easier to listen to, please do look on the Wessex podcast channel, the Wessex LMC podcast channel. And please do share resources with colleagues if you find it interesting. So today, I am very pleased to introduce Dr. Sarah Gray. She's hopefully going to improve our confidence in dealing with menopausal consultations. Hello, Sarah. Hello, I think we can all recognise the challenges and nuances involved in these consultations, including the enormous amounts of available medication options, or should I say unavailable options, as medication availability is always changing. So we are very grateful for your expertise. We have got plenty of time for question and answers at the end. If you put your questions in the question and answer box, we will get round to that at the end. Um, If you avoid the chat box so that we know that they're all in one place, that would be better. So over to Sarah Gray, she spent 30 years delivering women's health in primary care. She's been a GP formal since 92 and ran an NHS menopause referral clinic for 15 years until this was uh, decommissioned to save funding costs in 2016. And she remains on the performers list, but provides a specialist menopausal service in the independent sector now. She sat on the British Menopause Society Council for 10 years and was a member of the groups who developed NICE guidance and quality standards for heavy menstrual bleeding. She is now an executive director of the Primary Care Women's Health Forum and a training director for the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health. So thank you, Sarah.
1: Looking forward to hearing your talk. I'll pass over to you. Thank you. You can see, see the screen. That's a good, that's a good start. So I've got the enviable task of trying to walk you through menopause management in 45 minutes, but doing it in a way to try and give you some hints and tips and practical advice. So that almost impossible 10 minute slot in general practice is used to its best effect. So declarations of interest. We've already gone through those. What am I going to try and cover? I'm going to talk about identifying the problem, risk assessment, coming up with management options that are suitable for the patient. And what do you actually tell them in this really difficult 10 minute slot? So before we start, I'm going to ask you to just think for a second about what happens now in your practice. You've either got a patient who knows that her problem is menopause or she's got a variety of symptoms that bother her and it hasn't dawned on her yet that this is the explanation. But what I'd be suggesting is just be aware that whichever of those it is, it's going to need to be pretty bad to break through that rate-limiting step of getting through the message that says, don't darken our doors because we're much too busy doing other things. Understand that completely the problem has not not gone away. So just think your way through. If, if that approach is made, how do you manage the appointment with the healthcare professional? Does everybody see everybody to start off with? Or do you tell the reception staff to signpost to one or two or more individuals who who know more in which case they're going to do lots and the people who do less do even less and is that what you want to do so just worth having a think about how you manage that and then I'm going to take you right the way back to the beginning because this is what I usually do and this might be teaching you to suck eggs but hopefully it isn't it's reminding you about what happens during a normal menstrual cycle in that you have an egg that's recruited don't know how still The body chooses the one that it does, but it grows. And in growing, it produces estrogen. And when that gets to a certain critical level, it will trigger a release of luteinizing hormone from the anterior pituitary, which brings about ovulation. And the bit of the follicle that's left behind becomes yellow and is therefore known as a corpus luteum, produces progesterone. Progesterone changes the follicular endometrial pattern to a secretory endometrial pattern, i.e. it makes it thick and boggy, ready to receive an egg. But when it doesn't, the progesterone level plummets, the endometrium breaks down. What she sees is a period and on you go. And it's almost inflexibly 14 days from egg release until bleeding. But what happens as women approach menopause is that the eggs that they've got are fewer and they're of poorer quality, and they have to be driven harder. So in order to drive them harder, the FSH, the follicle stimulating hormone levels rise. And you will be asked by the infertility specialist sometimes to measure FSH in the first couple of days of a cycle, so days two to four. And if it's above about 10 units, it will be providing a big hint to them that egg quality is reducing they're needing to be driven harder and if that woman is going to go on and achieve a pregnancy you need to get on with it pretty sharpish so it's all about decreasing egg quality decreasing egg numbers women are born pretty much with all the eggs they ever have and they deplete during life so during the 40s they get fewer and fewer and poorer and poorer and the cycles will change as a result. And because these eggs are having to be driven hard, the first change that is usually recognized is that the first part of the cycle shortens. So instead of having periods that are 28 days apart, she has periods that are 25 days apart. That is absolutely normal, completely physiological. It reflects this change in eggs. And there'll be variability. So sometimes they're normal and sometimes they're, they're not. And then there'll be a big gap because an egg has failed to respond completely and then it might go back to what it was doing before so there's an increasing irregularity and a lack of predictability but in an ovulatory cycle when the egg has been released the progesterone will follow and she will get all those pre-menstrual symptoms that she might normally get so she'll get breast tenderness she'll get bloating she'll get the grumpiness and the things that come with the progesterone if she doesn't ovulate, she won't get that and she might be very relieved by it. But what might then happen is a torrential type bleed that happens out of the blue without any warning. And it feels as if the taps turn on and they sometimes don't feel as if they turn off. And that's an anovulatory bleed. It's an entirely different thing. And the advice is to give her some progesterone to sort the endometrium out, stabilise it and and go on go on from there. So you can work out what's happening by listening to the story that she tells you about the length of her cycles, about what the bleeding is like and um, the symptoms that precede the, the, the bleeding. And you can you can understand at what stage she's at much better by listening to her than you can by doing blood tests because you can clearly see the hormone levels fluctuate wildly and you're actually only taking a snapshot in time once the eggs have been significantly depleted they'll be making less estrogen you then get estrogen deficiency symptoms that really does sound like the obvious doesn't it and what might they be? So the vasomotor symptoms, these are driven from the hypothalamus where the temperature regulating center is. So in the absence of estrogen, we don't regulate temperature quite so well and it will overreact. So there will be flushing to lose heat and there may then be chills to retain heat, daytime flushes classically rising from the center of the chest upwards, night sweats, which may be more or less drenching, and sometimes a sense of palpitations to follow. And this is where the challenge comes, because is this just flush linked palpitations or is it an arrhythmia that you need to to worry about? But an intense flush can often have an adrenergic component to it that brings about palpitations. And for years and years and years, sleep disturbance was attributed to the night sweats. But it's separate. Different bit of the brain is responsible for sleep regulation. And classically, menopause linked sleep disturbance is awaking early in the night. So, unlike depression, it tends to be a one o'clock or a two o'clock in the morning wide awake for no apparent reason and often no particular anxiety associated with it but just awake and sometimes she'll wake up and then she will sweat and that if you can tease it out is is really pathognomonic of 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 menopause that is that is typical and it varies hugely and one of my more um I would say obsessive is too strong a word. Patients did me a sleep diary, 5.6 average wakings through the night before she started her HRT. And the numbers came down as the estrogen was replaced. And these brain mediated effects are responses to the drop in estrogen level. Not everybody gets them. And they if you like, wear off generally with time as the brain gets used to running at those lower estrogen levels. So often the flushes will go away, but often the sleep disturbance won't. And it's not uncommon to find women have had problems for many, many years that they've just put down to age or something quite else that can be improved. And if you thought that was difficult, mood change is even more challenging to unravel because there's lots of things clearly that can affect mood change. And menopause happens at that stage of life when there's a lot going on and there are possibly issues with the teenagers. There are almost certainly issues with the elderly folk. There might be issues with with, with the partner, job security. And then you've put COVID on the top of that in the last year. And how do you tease out which of that Is situational and how much of it is is hormonal is undoubtedly a challenge. But look out for it in those women who've previously had hormone sensitive mood change. They've had premenstrual symptoms. They've had postnatal depression. They haven't got on with some of the contraceptive combinations. And those women are much more likely to have an issue in menopause so you don't have to have those to have a a menopause linked issue it doesn't tends not to be a deep depression it tends to be a flat mood but often with a significant anxiety component often a loss of confidence and some women will tell you they just don't feel like the person that they used to be it's very subtle and very difficult to measure and then comes the brain fog, and that will sometimes be the cardinal symptom that women will present. That I can't think my way out of this. I can't make decisions. I can't multitask. And particularly those women who are working in corporate situations, boardrooms, might really challenged by the by by the by the brain fog, and it's it's very worth taking on board. And tiredness and fatigue, how much of that is situational? How much of it is the sleep disturbance? How much of it is purely hormonal? But what you're doing is you're building up a picture. And it's the combination of all of it that impacts on coping that usually triggers that request to have a chat. And it sometimes is just a chat. It's not always to do something about it. But it's the overall difficulty with coping in her situation. What else might happen? If the column on the left is brain things, we've then got systemic issues and some women will ache. They will get joint pains, they will get muscle pains, but they won't have any changes at all when you do the armful of blood tests. And there's a bit of a tendency at the moment to label a lot of them as fibromyalgia. Just think, could this be menopause? There are Oestrogen receptors in collagen at the end of the long bones, it has a powerful influence on collagen metabolism, elastin metabolism, and some women will get a menopause linked arthralgia, but without any joint swelling and out any obvious clinical signs. Skin change and hair change is linked to that because this is linked with the effect on collagen and About 10, 15 years ago, in the Christmas edition of the BMJ, there was a tongue in cheek survey where gynecologists had been asked to rate the age of the women they were going to see before they were given the notes. And consistently, they rated those women who'd had extended exposure to estrogen, i.e. were on HRT, at about 10 years younger because their skin quality was better. And even I don't prescribe HRT for wrinkles, but it can help urogenital atrophy different again this is to do with the fact that the genital tissues are histologically structurally dependent on each estrogen so at menarche, the vagina will become supple and lubricated and stretchy and after menopause it will turn back again the external denitalia need estrogen to be plump the bladder is another estrogen dependent tissue. The base of the bladder, the trigone and the urethra are derived from the same embryological source and bladder irritability, an overactive bladder, a feeling of cystitis, a propensity to infection will all follow, but won't follow quickly. Because whereas the sensitivity things kick in fast, this creeps up slowly. And if you ask women a year after their last period, 20% of them will tell you that they've got vaginal dryness. If you ask them three years after their last period, 50% of them will tell you that they've got vaginal dryness. And if you look at that vagina under the microscope, so the slide on the right is a section through a postmenopausal vaginal epithelium. The one on the left is a premenopausal. You can see how different they are. Numbers of cells, size of cells, layers of cells, and the blood supply in the sub-epithelial layer changes. So you can see what a difference it makes and you can see how easily it would be for the epithelium on the right to tear, whereas the one on the left is going to be much more stretchy and deformable. And you put that into the equation and if it hurts and if you ache and if you can't sleep and you're a bit grumpy and you're a bit hot and bothered, then it's absolutely no problem no surprise that there's an issue with sexual function which is multifactorial but in very very simplistic terms women need estrogen to feel female for their brain to feel female for them to feel sexual they need estrogen for their genital tissues to be comfortable to respond and the testosterone element which we may get back to later comes in only after that is the case and it just might help spontaneity and interest. So what did NICE say? NICE produced guidance at the back end of 2015. And they said menopause is a clinical diagnosis, which you base on bleeding pattern, which is why we did the physiology slide. Symptoms, which is why we've talked you through what happens. And it says Do not routinely do any blood tests if she's over 45 because the average age of menopause in the UK is 51 and a half. So she's over 45. She's going to be down that road. If you're not sure and she's 40 to 45, you might consider it. But the situation under 40 is different. It doesn't make your diagnosis. It supports your diagnosis. And if you're telling somebody under the age of 40 that they are menopausal they've got a lot of years to go that they're going to need support in so you want all the evidence behind you that you can to support that diagnosis and the only thing that you can realistically measure is fsh and so you look for a level that's over 30 on two separate occasions because of course you could get a level over 30 because she's ovulated it's not a simple and it's absolutely a moment in time thing. What it tells you is that this moment in time, the FSH is high because the ovaries aren't responding. It cannot tell you whether they will respond next week, next month or whenever. So you've got this lady, she's got symptoms and how much difference do they make on her life, on her work, on her relationship? And if you did nothing, what's going to happen to a urogenital system bones bones are a completely different subject which we'll come back to later she can't feel this it will make no difference to her but as the estrogen levels drop bone turnover speeds up and if the estrogen levels drop early she's got more years to have bone loss in similar but different issue with coronary artery disease because women's coronary arteries are comparatively protected by their oestrogen and as the oestrogen drops so the atheroma process starts so prematurely menopausal women are going to be more susceptible to coronary artery disease at a younger age and there's a bit of work going on about cognition and it is only a bit of work because a lot of this stuff got dumped with the HRT scares and it's being picked up in places places like the, the States. There's not very much work that's currently going on in the UK but prematurely menopausal women would appear to have greater issues with dementia in older life. No there isn't evidence that HRT helps that but the supposition is that it would if they are early when they're menopausal. So it's an absence of evidence rather than evidence of absence. So you've been through, you've made a diagnosis and you can do all of that just as well on the phone or down a video link. And actually, it might even be better down a video link because neither of you are having to wear masks so you can see the facial expressions and you can have some and integrate that with body language and actually see how much difference it makes and somebody can join her and explain what impact it's actually having so this picture is actually probably not the best way to do this i'd actually say really think hard about doing those initial menopause assessments down down the video but having decided that she is menopausal what are you going to do about it and this is where the being a GP is so valuable because you integrate stuff and you're trying to think your way through what a cardio what a gynecological background is what a cardiovascular background is breast bone metabolism mental health put it into the picture and then make a decision so hints and tips what are we going to do gynecology what has happened to her in the past particularly has she still got two ovaries surgical menopause is abrupt it is drastic and it is much more extreme than a natural menopause because often fully functioning ovaries are taken out so you lose all of the ovarian estrogens and about half of the androgen testosterone production if she's lost one ovary the other one might still be working but there may be a degree of deficiency but there are other more subtle things about history has she got a history perhaps of endometriosis and there might be ovarian compromise is there a problem with bleeding in the past do we know whether she's got fibroids put all those in together particularly bleeding particularly has she got any pathological change and do not forget issues of fertility if this woman is still having periods potentially she could get pregnant and the old rule of thumb still completely applies in that you allow two years after the last natural period if she's under 50 you allow one year after the last natural period if she's over 50 and Although the numbers are small, the implications of a late pregnancy are huge. So do make sure you understand what is being done about contraception. And it may be nothing because it's just too uncomfortable to have sex. Well, if you sort out the being too uncomfortable to have sex, you might then have a contraception issue. So how much of a problem is atrophy? And you can do all those first bits down the video, the bit that you can't do down the video is examine, and it would be a very good reason to bring her into the surgery and see what's going on, and she might have a fibroid uterus. Now, you're not going to feel much with one this size, and that's fine because those fibroids aren't really going to be a problem with with HRT. It would be the big ones that you can feel that might be. And having understood what a gynecological background is, think how much of a problem is oestrogen? And if she's got a uterus or she's got some endometrium at all, she's going to need some endometrial protection to protect it because putting back oestrogen is going to do what oestrogen does. It will stimulate the endometrium. And that over a long period of time would increase her risk of endometrial malignancy. So you need to have a progestogen in the combination to block that effect. And uh, even if she's not having periods because she's got a she's had an um an ablasive procedure, you can't assume it's got every last bit. A marina, and we'll come back to this, a levenogestral intrauterine system, has perfectly adequate progestogen for to balance any dose of estrogen. If she's had a period within the last year, you'd use your progestogen sequentially to give her a scheduled bleed. If it's more than a year, you'd use it continuously to try try, and make her bleed free. Cardiovascular, you're good as this as GPs, but think about her coronary arteries. Think about her cerebral arteries. Are there any rhythm issues? What risk factors are there? 10 times as many women will die of cardiovascular disease as will die of breast cancer. This is the thing to really be aware of. And as we've alluded to earlier, early menopause would go in my one of my risk factors. Once again, what is the effect of adding in estrogen? So on arteries, if you start it early, estrogen will have a positive effect because it will maintain that situation that the that the woman was having before. And there is now really good evidence that estrogen started comparatively soon after menopause will help to prevent atheroma buildup. And the Cochrane analysis of 2015 suggested that there was about a halving of heart attack risk in the next 10 years, which is really, really significant. But there isn't such a active pro-cardiovascular lobby as there is an active anti-breast lobby, so you don't tend to hear the, the story quite so much. Rhythm is really interesting in that there are some women who will get rhythm abnormalities resulting from rapid changes in um, hormonal concentrations and stabilization will help and my very favorite story is of a perimenopausal woman who was about to go for pathway ablation with the cardiologists and she came to see me she said you know it happens about halfway between my periods and we said oh yes and gave her nothing more technical than desergestrel to block ovulation and her mid-cycle SVT went away and she decided that she didn't want a pathway ablation. So it it, it it's the changes that tend to, to trigger rhythm ab- abnormalities. And progestogen, what difference does that make to arteries? And the answer is not a big lot, but there might be some differential effects between progestogens and the progesterone derived. So natural progesterone, diadrogesterone tends to be to to, to allow the favorable effect of estrogen to come through. And the testosterone derivatives tend a little bit to block that. When you think about venous system, what risk factors, obesity, smoking, all the DVT risk factors immobility. So what difference does adding in estrogen make to that? It depends on how you add it in. If you add it in orally, it will increase the coagulability of the blood a bit if you add it in through the skin and miss that hepatic first pass metabolism it won't and again the progesterone may have a minor modulating effect on that this is a whistle stop tour breast in gp land is she at population risk of breast cancer or is she above Population risk of breast cancer, and population risk is surprisingly high. It's one in seven during the life So, what difference do the hormones make? And if we're going to really, really simplify, then the added on hormones could, if there was a breast cancer already there, make it grow a bit more—only a bit. Oestrogen has some effect. Progestogen is proliferative, and so we'll add to it. So an oestrogen and progestogen combination would slightly increase the growth of a breast cancer that was already present, but wouldn't initiate. And the size of this effect is absolutely identical to if she was producing these herself. So if she's menopause before average age... And she's replaced. She's at no greater risk than if she was naturally having periods. The hormones do what the hormones do. Tibolone is very subtly different. Tibolone is a synthetic steroid that isn't estrogen. It is estrogenic. It isn't subject to the same hepatic first pass effect it gets through the liver without being affected and in target cells it's converted to one of three different metabolites so it works like estrogen on bone but it doesn't work like estrogen to the same extent in breast and it doesn't work like estrogen in the uterus so it doesn't need a progestogen added to it it isn't artery friendly it's not prothrombotic. it's quite different And for breast, if she has breast tenderness that's estrogen and progesterone related, it might be an option that you would consider. We've had it since 1991. It's a little bit, but only a little bit more expensive than conventional HRT. And there is a supposedly generic equivalent. um, And I've got no evidence, but lots of experience. and I'm not convinced that the generic is quite as reliable as the original brand, but that's just just my take on the situation bone this looks ever so similar doesn't it what is her risk is she at higher fracture risk than the rest of the population and how much higher is she and hormones have fallen out of favor with with bone there is lots and lots of evidence that is old because nobody's done any recent studies and estrogen will protect bone because bone loss speeds up once the oestrogen level drops. So you put the oestrogen back and it will stop loss at low level. And at a standard HRT dose, oestrogen will build back bone as well as a bisphosphonate will. And you think, well, why don't the rheumatologists know this? Because when the NICE guidance on bone osteoporosis was developed it started in the early 2000s it started at the time of the hrt scares it started at the time that bisphosphonates were new and hormones weren't put in the scope of nice guidance so they didn't think about it so they didn't comment on it so it's not there now and it's a whole chunk that's there that's missing but estrogen is a bone protecting drug if she's being prescribed estrogen and she's got a uterus she's going to need a progestogen, but it's not going to make much difference to the bone But tibolone is also bone protective. And there is evidence down to half of a tibolone tablet. That's 1.25 milligrams that it will prevent bone loss in women in their 60s. So all of those are options for you, though in the days when we did have an osteoporosis quaff, you used to have to exemption report women who were being treated with these options because they weren't a nice bone sparing drug but if she's dithering and she thinks does she or does she not if she's got a bone risk it might be worth considering and in my view if somebody's menopausal in their early 40s and they're 10 years ahead of schedule that means that the hip fracture that would otherwise be scheduled for her mid 80s is going to happen in her mid 70s and if she's wanting to go rushing around and do stuff then you have to have a really good argument not to think about hormone replacement from a purely bone protection perspective. And if it gave you arterial protection as a bonus and possibly helped to preclude the dementia, then that seems like a really good idea to me. So you're going to give us something. How are you going to get it in? And then you think about metabolism. And again, as GPs, we do lots of work on this but think about what her symptoms if she really really sweating would it stop a patch from sticking has she got a gut issue that might make it difficult reliably to absorb an oral product are there issues with first pass metabolism protein binding well what's that the liver makes something called sex hormone binding globulin sex hormone binding globulin surprise surprise binds sex hormones and those that are bound are relatively inactive so it's only the proportion that's not bound that is there to be to be acted so she's got lots and lots of sex hormone binding globulin her hormones aren't going to work very well and neither is the hrt and where you see this most is in women who are on a high dose thyroid replacement because levothyroxine induces sex hormone binding globulin. And I've completely lost count of the number of women on 100 micrograms or above of levothyroxine whose standard dose HRT has not really done very much for them. That might be a good reason to avoid first pass metabolism to send it through the, through the skin. All of those things need need thinking about it. And then you've got the effect of the enzyme inducers affecting breakdown and elimination. So although we very much think about one size fits all, it doesn't. And some women will need quite significant differences in dosage or route to make things work for them. Mental health. So there's a direct impact of these menopausal symptoms they affect mood, they affect cognition and then which bit of it can we actually mitigate is it the lack of estrogen that's causing the problem or is it the presence of progesterone or progestogens and this is sometimes difficult to unravel in women going through their 40s who are getting a very marked premenstrual syndrome how much of that is the estrogen dropping how much of the fact is that they are intolerant of their progesterone and the low estrogen just unmasks that and could there be an issue of androgens if she's had her ovaries removed and the answer is very commonly because testosterone or a lack of in women will tend to have a more profound effect on mood and it will be anxiety it'll be positivity it'll be motivation energy and in other areas it will cause aching and it will potentially impact on sexual interest but sexual interest tends to be at the end of my list that makes me say well I think this might be an issue for you but then you've got the second aspect of mental health with all the other things and it might be the lack of sleep it might be the hot flushes it might be the effect that they are having as symptoms on her confidence that's knocking, knocking her back. And women will tell me that they're seen as being ineffectual in boardrooms if they're flushing and sweating and opening the windows. And that then has a further knocking effect to understand what it's doing to her. So let's have an example. This lady's 49. She's got severe flushing, daytime and nighttime She's got sleep disturbance. She gets to sleep, but wakes four or five times and then sweats. Absolutely typical. Tired all the time. Irritable, angry, short fuse, readily tearful, lacking motivation, lacking confidence. Forgetful, struggling to concentrate, car keys in the fridge. We've all heard this. Some urinary urgency and frequency. Sufficient vaginal dryness such that sex is uncomfortable. Sexual interest has disappeared. Disappeared. She's aching all over and she last had a bit of a bleed three months ago. She had something six months before that, but has had no typical period for over a year. That tells you the story. You need nothing more to make a diagnosis. This woman is menopausal and at 49, you're really not going to be that surprised. But she's desperate for some help. So... Let's take two scenarios. Scenario one, you look down your computer. She's got a BMI that's good. Blood pressure is normal. She's a paragon of virtue. She's not smoked. She doesn't drink much. She exercises regularly. She's not on any other pills. Nothing much has happened to her in the past and nothing much has happened to the family. And her husband has had a vasectomy because it was, he thought it was his turn, but she's taken an absolutely standard ethinyl estradiol, even a gestral combined pill in the past without problems. And this is easy. This doesn't raise any issues. There are no gynecological issues. We know that she's got a bit of atrophy, but we're not worried about that bleeding pattern because it fits with what we understand. There's nothing in the past that bothers us. She hasn't got any hormone intolerance cardiovascularly, she fits in the low risk group. There's really no risk factors there to cause concern. There are no factors which make you any more worried about her breasts than anybody else. There are no factors that make you worry about her bones. She's exercising. Nothing of significance metabolically, but the whole lot of it is impacting on her mental health. So, you feel very confident that you can go ahead and give her something standard first line. However,
0: yeah, I'm just going to give you a five minute warning if that's okay. That's fine. Questions are coming through. Thank you. That's
1: absolutely fine. So slightly different. If she's got a BMI of 32, she's taking antihypertensives. She's smoking she's drinking more than she should she walks a bit she's got type 1 diabetes she's hypothyroid now you think that i'm making this up i am not making this up this is a real patient entirely different situation but the bit we're not worried about is gynecologically because there's nothing that she tells us that worries and she's covered for contraception what we are worried about are cardiovascular issues and We ought to worry about her breast because being overweight and drinking that much alcohol will have an impact on her breast risk. She's not exercising very much. Metabolism, she's on the levothyroxine. Mental health, still desperate. So this lady is certainly manageable in a GP setting, but this is the one that you would be going, oh, I'm not very happy about giving you tablets. But if you deliver that oestrogen through the skin, you would avoid all of the issues. You'd avoid the cardiovascular risk. You'd avoid the interaction with the thyroxine. You'd avoid the, 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 the liver and you would be utterly reasonable to give her a through the skin oestrogen and progesterone combination. So for estrogens, pretty much equivalent doses would be a oral two milligrams 50 as a patch, one and a half milligrams as gel, two measures as the spray, or if you've still got somebody on it, 0.625 of conjugated equine estrogens. Those would have a comparable effect on bone. They may or may not have a comparable effect on symptoms. And think about the non-oral ones. If she's got high cardiovascular risk, liver issues, gut effects from absorption, or thyroid replacement. Progestogens, we are going to whistle through, but progestogens are not the same. They have a variety of effects on different steroid receptors. And so, one progestogen may have a very different effect in vivo compared to another. And we have some that are testosterone-derived, such as norethisterone. We've got some which block testosterone, such as cyproterone acetate. So, there are differences that were most likely to make a difference to mood between the progestogens. And if we're mixing them all up, a levonorgestrel 52 milligram intrauterine system would provide protection, though the cert isn't licensed for it. Or... 10 to 14 days per cycle of norethisterone, which you would struggle to do on its own, but comes in combination. Didrogesterone, you can't do on its own because it's only available in contraception, but you can use medroxyprogesterone and you can use progesterone. And the licensed option is a version called eutrogestan, which comes as 100 milligram capsules. So you'd need two of them in that second half of the cycle from day 15 to day 28 and they are usually swallowed but because pre- progesterone can sometimes make people nauseous which is why it gives pregnant women hyperemesis it can sometimes affect their mood you can use the capsule vaginally it is not licensed but you use the same capsule in the same dose popped in with a finger if she's more than 12 months after the last period, she can have a levonorgestrel intrauterine system or daily use of a progesterone. And the dose of the progestogen will vary with the oestrogen. So there are norethisterone combinations. There are digesterone combinations. There are some with medroxyprogesterone, but you can use medroxyprogesterone standalone, or you can use one capsule of the uterogestine and the draspirinone combination has been withdrawn, but was included to show that it has been used in an HRT combination before. And as I said, tibolone is different. It doesn't need an additional progestogen. So in my last two minutes, Angela is 63. She stopped her hrt because she was told she could have five years which is utter rubbish she had a miserable time flushing has gone she's coping with that but she's got recurrent urinary tract infection and when you ask has not had sex more than for more than a year It is too painful and her husband is very patient and then there's a big silence so what she needs is some vaginal estrogen all of the ones that are available in the uk are very low potency and therefore can be used unopposed because there isn't enough absorbed to stimulate the endometrium. We've got two strengths of estradiol cream, but be aware that the lower strength has been hiked in price and is about five times as much as the 0.1, which is a vest in. There are Vagifem tablets and an equivalent called Vagirux, which has a single applicator. If you've got a person who doesn't like the, the plastic All of those are used daily for two weeks, then twice a week. According to the licensing, that's the lowest dose that works. Some women will need a bit more. There are a variety of very low dose newer options. They've been trialed on vaginal dryness. There is no evidence that's been published about them being able to help the bladder. So if you've got people with bladder issues, then I'd be tempted to go for one of those or An estradiol releasing ring, which is about 54 millimetres in diameter, gets popped inside and left there for 12 weeks before it's fished out. And that is equivalent to five Vagifem a week or if you've got long memories or as old as me, two of the old 25 microgram tablets a week. And that had a licence indefinitely. So we can be really confident that all of these will work. Nice says keep going with them um but you will find that some of their licenses are say used for two years and then stop because they were only originally trialed for two years and then you can use the nice guidance to say yes but it's all right to keep going and when it comes to keeping going that's when i think i stop keeping going because i think there are some questions
0: thank you sarah that was brilliant i wondered if you would um stop screen sharing we certainly perfect we have got 15 questions, so I'm going to go through them. If we can sort of try and address as many as we can in a succinct manner, that would be wonderful. The first one is if um, someone's starting on sequential HRT um, because she has had a period or more in the last 12 months,
1: when is it reasonable to switch to continuous HR? You ask her the question when you review her of what her bleeding is like and when it starts. If she's starting to bleed, towards the end of the progesterone phase you're never going to get away with a continuous combined what she will typically say a couple of years down the line is it's now taking a bit longer before the bleed starts if it's taking three or four days on withdrawal swap her over then if you start her on a sequential one and she doesn't bleed at all well you can swap her over straight away but it's, it's very individual. And the advice is to try and do that change within five years, but don't be in too much of a hurry.
0: Thank you. And if you change them to a, sequen- uh, to a continuous and they do start bleeding, what's the evidence about how long we can wait until
1: we need to... We, we, we wouldn't normally worry much for the first three months. If she's still bleeding at six months, then I would investigate. But if somebody's on a continuous combined and has been bleed free, then be aware. However ask her what the bleeding was like. If she tells you it was just like a period, it was just like a period. And there is quite a bit of evidence that when the estrogen is replaced, you might find an odd old egg that wouldn't have done anything on its own that's decided to work. So if she's had breast tenderness, if she's been grumpy, if she bleeds for five days, and it's just like a period, don't worry about it. If it's Bits and pieces, if it's chaotic, if it's heavy, if it comes without warning, those are much more worrisome. But what is evidently a hormonal bleed usually is. And it might not be full-blown ovulation, but it might be an egg doing a bit of something and then dwindling away again.
0: And if they, for example, you start them on continuous combined and they have breakthrough bleeds, is it reasonable to trial them on a sequential? Yes, absolutely. And yes. if they're okay on that that's reassuring
1: absolutely yes because it's a bit like the analogy with progesterone only contraception where some women just have unstable bleeding they might be better with something that gives them a scheduled withdrawal bleed rather than chaos
0: thank you um the and the other question is when do you stop hrt are you um if
1: patients are keen are you happy to continue them indefinitely the advice is that there's no arbitrary limit what you should be doing is doing a risk analysis once a year why are we doing this what are you getting out of it that's positive what might you be getting out of it that's negative is it the right combination is it the right dose is it the right route and as an informed decision it is perfectly reasonable to keep going but write it all down so that if somebody else comes across it they will know what decision you've made from from why there never was a you can only have HRT for five years that was an invention of the press but an annual review is is reasonable and quite empirically I usually have anybody that's still on an oral off an oral and onto a transdermal by their mid-60s
0: okay thank you And what about HRT
1: options if they've had a subtotal hysterectomy? Oh, what a big challenge. Um, it's, it's, It's almost a reason not to have a subtotal hysterectomy. But what we tend to do is give them a progestogen challenge. So a reasonable dose. And I usually use medroxyprogesterone acetate, 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams for a fortnight and stop it. And if they don't bleed, do it again six months later. And if they still don't bleed, I'm happy not to use a progestogen. But if there's any suggestion of bleeding, they've got some endometrium there.
0: And, and do you do that while they're on HRT? Because if they come saying they want HRT and you want to do these challenges. Yes, I do.
1: Months. Yes, I'd give I've given them the estrogen and then say, well, what we're going to do is three months after you've started, we'll give you a dose of progestogen for a fortnight. And if you bleed, then we know that we're going to keep going. But if you don't bleed, we're going to do it again six months later. And if you don't bleed on two occasions, then we can be really reasonably certain that there's no endometrium because the surgeons will vary greatly in how much cervical canal they've left and how much endometrium there might be down there.
0: Excellent. Thank you. And um, when you start someone on HRT for... um, anxiety and brain fog for example when do you when do you see the results of the mental symptoms
1: a bit within a couple of weeks but it could easily take eight to ten to fully fully stabilize and it might be that she just needs a bit more okay and um and have you heard of creeping crawling skin Uh, oh yes it's got it's got a fantastic name it's called formication not with an M in the middle, it's from the Latin for ants, and it is a well-recognized estrogen deficiency symptom. It feels like ants creeping all over you. It is it's 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 totally recognised as a as as a one of these great, but it's another skin thing. Okay, thank you. Um,
0: I'm just having a look for some of the other questions. Um, would you insert an IUS? For the progesterone arm of HRT in a lady who has
1: previously had an endometrial ablation, no, they can put it in at the time of the ablation. But once she's had an ablation, there's going to be all sorts of complicated scarring in that uterus. The potential—it's—it's a—it's a real, real challenge. That one, but but do not assume that you can get an you can get an IUS in. Very occasionally, the gynaecologist can with the hysteroscope, but it's it's not for the faint-hearted. Thank you. And I think um, you will need a combined option. You would absolutely need a combined option. But because there's not very much endometrium, you don't normally need a very potent progesterone. So a 100 milligrams and actually and on that subject, I completely would not do a sequential because if as a result of the ablation, there's adhesions and scarring it's possible with a sequential combination to get a build up of menstrual blood within the uterus and a hematometria which when it bursts is fairly hideous so if she's had an if she's had an ablation yes she needs progestogen but use continuous thank you
0: and the um, combined hrt in the higher risk group for existing breast cancer Does this apply to if it is the marina
1: contributing to the progesterone? Right. And the answer is nobody knows. But the marina will have some effect. We do not know which end of the scale it sits at. We don't know. It's likely to be somewhere in the middle. So there will be some systemic absorption from the marina, but it's probably not as much as if you were using systemic nor oestrogen or even a gestrol, but it's it's not it's not totally pinned down.
0: Thank you. And I've just lost the question, but it, uh, someone had asked about a lady who was having menopausal symptoms in her early forties: hot sweats, night flushes. Sorry, hot flushes, night sweats. Normal FSH. Would you treat her with HRT? Yes, I wouldn't have done the FSH, even though she was in her early forties. Well, if,
1: if, if 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 it if the, the story was sufficiently classical because what is likely to be is that those th- symptoms get worse before the period. So if you can get a cyclical variation theme coming out of it, you can be pretty certain that they are hormonally in, induced. Um, so if if I'd got that that sense, then I would be giving her some sort of top up um the this is this is the 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 difficulty with the fsh if it's normal it doesn't mean that she's not having symptoms yeah um and this is this is this is the challenge to, to 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 try and tick your tick your way through so i would have i would have i would have been very unlikely to have done an fsh in that that situation i'd have asked her lots of questions and made sure that i understood what was going on and what the pattern was over a menstrual cycle
0: because i because i think if you do do fsh and it comes up as high you're more reassured that it's probably got a menopausal yes element,
1: yes but, but if it,
0: one doesn't th- reassure doesn't know no,
1: no. so so i so essentially are you going to treat that woman on the clinical presentation and you might even be totally honest and say this is a therapeutic trial you know it if putting a bit back helps a bit, but not enough, then you've not put enough back. It might be as simple as that.
0: And when, when you say a therapeutic trial, when do you expect them to get beneficial results? Oh, by,
1: by three months. I'd give them three months and see.
0: Okay. And going back to the FSH question, you have mentioned two FSHs over 30. If you get one in sort of 80s, 90s, 100, is that reassurance that so you don't need to repeat it?
1: Because mm. I have
0: heard in a previous talk that you don't need to necessarily record. well as
1: i said i would very rarely rep- and, and it depends on the the circumstances that you're in you're you're, make, you're making clinical decisions you know if it, has this woman had no bleeding as she got an fsh over over 80 it's very likely that the that the that the, the two are that the two are linked but as i said if it's if it's iffy then you would do a you'd do a second second one so the decision needs to be primarily clinical and supported by the fsh rather than driven by the fsh okay.
0: because i think sometimes it might be used when people have got morena coil or other form of contraception and you've got these symptoms oh that's you know.
1: where you that's that's where you will have you will have heard it because if the, there is a uh, the the faculty advice got revised a year or so ago you know Can we take this out in a year's time? So if she's got a really raised FSH, you'd leave it in for another year and then pull it out. So you're using it as an assessment of what her residual fertility is rather than making the diagnosis of of menopause. That may be where, where you actually heard it from. And you can do the same thing potentially if you've got somebody with a contraceptive implant who was in there it was say 52 and it was due for another year if you do her fsh and it's raised in a year's time it can come out and you don't need to put another one in if you do it and it's not raised you'll be needing to think about another form of contraception at the end of that that year so there's a bit of forward planning that you can do with with that
0: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I think I've sort of thought of it in the context of contraceptive need rather than. It's it's, it's it's it's
1: it's 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 a it's a different idea. So it's you know diagnosing menopause is a diff, is a is a different point in the system to deciding whether or not there's any chance this woman could get pregnant.
0: And and on that question, someone has asked about the potential of using two desogestrel tablets. As the project- I do that all the time. As
1: a progesterone, yes, I, I do it frequently. I know that it's not licensed. What I do has been published and peer reviewed, and like, and the logic is that if one hundred and fifty micrograms of diazestril is adequate for endometrial pro- protection in mercilon, marvelon, and the equivalents with ethinyl estradiol, it's going to be every bit enough to oppose some natural estrogen in an hrt regime and where i use it particularly is in menopausal women with migraine because i want to block ovulation and it's one of the few ways you can reliably block ovulation in menopausal women when you're not wanting to use an oral estrogen so as i said i do i do this a, a lot i know it's i know it's unlicensed it gives the pharmacists the BBGBs but when you when you sort of understand the logic of where you come from then that's that's fine and what I could do with is somebody doing some proper research and actually saying that this is this is not empirical this is evidence-based
0: yes and someone else has asked about migraines that you've now touched on and can you use HLT with migraines
1: yes but we would generally generally advocate a non-oral so it doesn't have any clotting effect and i would generally suggest that you think about patches because they are most stable because changing hormone levels can trigger migraines
0: thank you and i think we've got one last question if that's okay because we've run out of time but the last question is how do you wean and stop hrt do do it abruptly or do you wean slowly i usually
1: wean off i would typically Halve the dose for three months and see what happens. And the advice is always to use the lowest dose that works. So if you halve and it's fine and you halve again and it isn't fine, you go back to the half dose and you stay at the lowest dose that works.
0: Because some people will never stop flushing, even if they're in their 60s, 70s. And I no. don't know if
1: you've got a percentage of how many people flush all their life and how many. It, it gets fewer as they get older. But if they've had a surgical menopause, they are much more likely to. To flush long term. Mm. Because they'll have lost not only all their ovarian estrogens, they'll have lost half of their androgens for conversion to oestrogen. To, to so they tend to have a much worse time of it.
0: Well, thank you so much. I could ask you questions for hours and we have got sort of quite a few other questions and I'm sorry we haven't got round to any of, uh, all of them. I hope I've sort of tried to give a bit of a balanced view covering the sort of mm. basics of sort of HRT, but that's been really informative and really helpful and, um, and lots of really good food for thought. So thank you so much, Sarah. and I um, sure. really appreciate it.
1: Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.